And every single day I think back to those days as a college athlete when I had to just fight through mentally. It was a grind every single day. It was just get to the next day, get to the next day. You'll get back for a year and a half. So yeah, definitely I'd say every experience that I went through as an athlete has really helped me, you know, build what we're building now. So that, that's the awesome thing about it. One day we might talk and somebody says, no, this is stupid or something like that. And it's like, well, just because you think that the next five people might not think that and just making sure that we just continue to grow as men and also just the ability to make sure that we don't rub people the wrong way. I think football has taught us that it's like, you never know what this person next to you is gonna do in 10 years, 15 years, and things like that. So making sure you always lead with good intentions. Hello everybody. My name is Amir Carlisle, former wide receiver for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, current co-founder of the Players Company and also Bank Dow. What's going on everybody? It's your boy Sheldon Day. Indianapolis, Indiana native, current Cleveland Brown defensive tackle, and also I'm the co-founder of the Players Company and also Bank Dow, and we're live. With the game plan. Hey, faithful listeners. Welcome back to the game plan with Jake Kapoor and Tim Cott. Every week, we share stories from professional athletes that help you raise your game in business and in life. As always, I'm your host, Jake Kapoor. If you listen to this show regularly, you know that the shifting interest of athletes from endorsement to ownership is something that we talk about quite a bit on The Game Plan. In fact, it comes up pretty regularly with a lot of our guests. Well, it turns out that in the last few years, athletes aren't the only ones that are thinking about how to get ownership in the brands, companies, and even financial institutions that they help to build as an early adopter, micro-influencer, or simply as a customer. You may have come across terms like Web3, the creator economy, or even DAOs, spelled D-A-O, for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Well, today's episode focuses on the latter, through the lens of the Players Company, founded by our two guests, NFL defensive lineman Sheldon Day and former wide receiver Amir Carlisle. Teammates and friends since their earliest days at Notre Dame, the two co-founders are leveraging this unique infrastructure to provide both education and investment opportunities to both athletes as well as their communities at large. Together with Amir and Sheldon, I dug into what DAOs are and how, using tokens, they are able to unlock and incentivize behaviors around managing and investing money that simply aren't possible in today's current, quote, Web2 ecosystem. Look, I certainly learned a lot from our guests about the power of group economics. And though it's early days for both their company and the Web3 ecosystem, I'm pretty optimistic about the kinds of participation and the new models of participation that the players' company and Web3 are hoping to unlock. All right, let's dive into the wild, wild world of Web3 and DAOs with today's guests, Amir Carlisle and Sheldon Day, only on The Game Plan. All right. I'm excited to have the founders of the Players Company here on The Game Plan today. So Sheldon Day, Amir Carlisle, welcome to The Game Plan. Appreciate you having us, Jay. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, let's jump into it, guys. So I know we got two guys. So just so we get a sense of both of your voices, Sheldon, I'd love for you to start first. Give us a little background on how you and Amir met and what started to then spark the idea behind what is now the, the Players Company. Wow. So you're taking it back to uh, a while ago. Uh, me and Amir have been cool since my early enrollee freshman year and his transfer year into Notre Dame. We both met day one. 
Uh, I was moving into the dorms. He was also moving into the dorms. He was transferring in. I was early enrolling. Dang, it was O'Neill Hall. I don't remember the year because it's been a while. It's been a long place. Twenty twelve. Place yeah. then. It was what? Twenty twelve. Yeah, twenty twelve. Wow, twenty twelve. So me and Amir have been rocking since twenty twelve. Uh, we majored in the same major. Took classes together. Uh, we went to the lab together. So it's been a working relationship since twenty twelve. Uh, lived across the hall. So uh, man, it's been a long time coming. Uh, and actually, when I moved, when he moved back to the Bay and I was coming in to play for the 49ers, we reconnected and it was like, wow, we worked together all those years. Let's do something. Let's let's go. Let's go create. Let's create a business or let's just put, throw ourselves into the VC space. So uh, we started to get interested in VC, started interested in alternative investments and things like that. So that's kind of what drew us together. And as we tried to navigate this and that's how we kind of started our baby, the players company and really focused on how do you help athletes grow their financial knowledge and things like that. So that's kind of our, our genesis story, how we started, how we met, and things like that. But I actually knew Amir's dad from the recruiting process while he was uh, the head strength coach at Purdue. So it was, it was bound for us to meet somehow, some way, but that's how the uh, cards unfolded for sure. Yeah, Amir, tagging a little bit here. So, so talking about you know the mission of the players' company, this idea of financial literacy, set the stage for us. What does financial literacy look like for most of the players in the NFL today. And then Sheldon, maybe you can talk about what conversations are happening in the locker room, you know, as a current player around financial literacy. Yeah, simply, you know, financial literacy is just having the information to make better financial decisions. That's how we define it. And currently right now in the NFL, you know, there's a rookie symposium. When guys get drafted, they come in. Nowadays, that rookie symposium is all done at the the team's facility, but they'll typically have an outsourced uh, financial advisor or financial firm come in and do it's typically a one-day workshop. I know some teams have moved away from that one-day workshop and are providing some more ongoing resources. But, you know, what I went through was a one-day workshop. You know, you had a guy from, say, Morgan Stanley come in, put a PowerPoint up and say, you know, this is how you should be thinking about money for about an hour. And it really doesn't get the job done. You know, you can't learn everything you need to understand in a one hour's time. It's got to be fluid, especially... That transition, you know, people discount, you know, how extreme that transition is. But we have a financial literacy problem as an entire country. We're not taught about money as children. We're not taught about money in high school or college. And so we have very little understanding of how money works. And now you exacerbate that issue with an athlete. We're not allowed to work internships or jobs in college. So very little, like, especially in our day, like now this NIL, these kids are touching money a lot sooner, which I hope that'll make a change. But we didn't touch barely any money besides our per diem checks. And so we had very little experience with understanding how to really leverage money as a tool and then really understand how do we make better financial decisions? Because we the decisions we were making were, what do I want to eat tonight? Or, you know, do I want to get a tattoo, et cetera? And so now you kind of have that transition overnight where it's like, okay, you're third, second round draft pick, you got a six, six figure signing bonus. And now it's like, okay, game on. Now, how do I figure out how to, you know, save? How do I figure out how to budget? And so that's really what, you know, the problem that we saw was that the current system was just approaching financial literacy from uh, here and now. Let's teach you this right now versus there's so many different underlying issues with just like some guys don't come to that realization that they have to take their money seriously to year eight. And so like, it's got to be kind of this fluid support. And the other thing is like, you know, the finance, I mean, the NFLPA does a great job of, you know, offering resources. Um, but we've always kind of operated off of this picture. It's this picture of this guy standing on eight different ladders, 
overlooking a wall and the ladders are all in a pile. And it's like, you could give somebody an unlimited amount of resources, but if you don't teach them how to use them, they're useless. And so that's kind of where we're at right now, where you know a lot of the resources aren't being utilized because nobody has taught guys how to actually use the resources. So that's kind of the current, you know, how I would evaluate the current financial literacy landscape in the NFL. Yeah, and then just to kind of touch on how it is in the locker room, it's it's kind of mind blowing. Most guys get their information from other guys, or they ask, "Who's your financial advisor?" or "What are you doing?" outside of your financial advisor. And it's like, oh, well, I'm doing this. And now you just go throw money at this next idea. So I know uh, Bitcoin was a big thing. There's like, oh, I got Bitcoin. Oh, well, just go buy Bitcoin then. No, it's like, how do you understand something? Do you know what Bitcoin is? Do you know what it's used for? Things like that. So I think in the locker room, it's a weird space. It's a more he say, she say, and then follow the trends. And then it's all about a uh, hype beast. And like, can you keep up with the Jones? If somebody goes, buys a Mercedes, oh, well, he has one. Let me go buy one. Or uh, I have, I'm a second round pick. I have, let's say 500,000 in the bank. Oh, if I can swipe my card and I can afford it. Now I think like that's the lifestyle I should live. So keeping up with the Joneses is definitely a problem with financial literacy in the locker room and also just following the trends for sure. Yeah. I, I, it's interesting you mentioned that. I remember I don't know, maybe six or eight months ago, Victor Cruz, you know, a uh, former giant was, uh, was on Clubhouse and he was talking about, he's like, you know, and he is somebody who played for a while, right? Made, made a good contract, won a Super Bowl. You feel like he should have the resources around him. But he was even like, you know, what am I supposed to be reading? Like, am I supposed to be reading certain newsletters? Am I supposed to be following certain Twitter accounts? And you would think with a guy like that, there would be an ecosystem of people around him that are able to guide him on some of these questions. What does that ecosystem look like? You mentioned financial managers. You mentioned probably agents that are around you. You know, what are their incentives and, and are they still incentivized in the sort of the best interest of the athlete or or has that become a little bit misaligned? I think the the misalignment has become cloudy. So most financial advisors, they care about assets under management. They all, all they care about is that that number. Oh, how many or how many guys can I get to this maximum number so that I can reap the benefits or the percentages off of that? So uh, I know Amir could probably touch on this a little bit, too, but. The main goal of a financial advisor is to keep all uh, individual or clients' assets under his management or his counsel because then he's getting paid off the percentages and things like that. And I know a lot of guys, uh, they bring opportunities. Uh, just for example, if I want to open a Chick-fil-A, hey, I, I got this idea. I want to open a Chick-fil-A. What can I do? How do I go about it? They say that's not their realm and that you need to find somebody else to do that. Or they say it's a bad idea so they can keep the assets under management. So I know that's a big problem going on in locker rooms and things like that, but it's like, I want to grow and I want to diversify and I can't just do that specifically in the stock market. So I know a lot of guys are trying to think bigger and things like that. But the, like Amir said earlier, the resources aren't there and we don't know how to use them to obviously advance our knowledge and things like that. And to piggyback off of that, you know, one of the reasons I think really it is so broken is just due to the economic structure of things. Like Sheldon said, you really can't create a system that works in a player's best interest when you're just getting paid off of your participation. When a financial advisor is making that 1% regardless, I don't care if you've lost 90% of your portfolio, I will still recoup my 1%. Same thing with agents. I don't care if you get cut after the season, I still recoup my 3%. And so just due to the economic structure of things, you can't be aligned economically. Now you create a world where you create a new system where say it's a financial advisor who gets paid off of his performance. Well, now he's incentivized to perform in the best interest of that player. I know all financial advisors have a fiduciary responsibility, but at the end of the day, they've got families to feed, they got to put food on the table. And so they need that 1%. 
But if they need, if they were getting paid off for performance, they're going to do what they have to do in order to put that food on the table, which is going to be making Sheldon money in this case. And so really from our standpoint of what was so wrong with all of these different systems, it was just economic models around them. We weren't economically aligned, whether it be the league. Shoot, if I go broke as a former player, the NFL is going to, it does not care one iota. They're generating billions and billions of dollars. A financial advisor, if I'm no longer his client and they had somebody come back into that revolving door, they're okay. And so that's the piece that we'll, you know, we'll, we'll touch on you know, later on when we kind of talk about the whole Web3 space. But it really came down to the reason for this misalignment is because these systems are economically misaligned and you can't really create a system that is aligned without creating a new system. And so that was really the part that we saw as really the root cause of why and at the center of this ecosystem, screaming, well, what about me? Who's here to maintain my interests? With all of these, basically, people just extracting, extracting. I'm extracting value from here. I'm extracting value from here. And no one really there to say, hey, look, I want to pour into you. And that was really the problem that we set to really solve. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that point up because, and a few of our guests on the, on the game plan now have talked about this idea where you know, wealth advisors in some ways are specialists around public markets, right? And maybe they know a little bit of sort of late stage private. But the biggest thing that we have seen sort of in the last decade, this like really post social media, you know, you can find deals on Twitter, you can meet people through LinkedIn. It has democratized access for everybody, not, not just athletes, right? Like anybody, if you're an executive at a company, but you want to angel invest, you now have the access to that that maybe you didn't 10 years ago. And what I have always been surprised by is how few, you know, RIAs, you know, financial managers are really educating themselves on those opportunities. All alternatives, right? You mentioned opening a Chick-fil-A franchise or, you know, getting into uh, any of these sort of digital collectibles, fractionalized assets. It's still very old world thinking. And so I was really intrigued to learn about this idea of a social wealth club that we had brought up sort of in, in one of our earlier calls, Sheldon. So, you know, what is a social wealth club? Like, how do you pair education with opportunity? Talk me through that in, in a broader sense and sort of how you guys approach this opportunity. Yeah, so that's that's a great question. So pretty much uh, we believe in a group economics and group economics being the opportunity for a group of people or a community of people to invest in opportunities to grow their wealth. But before we believe before you invest, you have to learn. You have to be educated in a scenario and things like that. So uh, for an example, if we want to de-risk an opportunity such as real estate, we want to make sure everybody has a passion in real estate. They want to make sure that they, let's say they're in opportunity zones or they just want to do an apartment building for their community. How do we get a group of people from that area to invest together to also learn about it to ultimately grow their wealth? So we know as professional athletes, we have social impact. We know that we have the fame to follow. So if we get behind something and now everything just kind of takes a, a higher trajectory once we get behind things. So that's the idea that we've kind of taken on as a social wealth club to make sure that we have social impact, but we can also grow our wealth together as a community of professionals and also just the common people as well. Does everybody in the club have the same interest? Like if you're into real estate, but but I'm into, you know, fractionalized assets and somebody else is into private equity, you know, can we educate each other or do you have to sort of segment based on on interest? 
I believe uh, if you get introduced to something, now you have or you can learn about it. So I might not even know what fractional digital assets are. So I'm like, oh, let me go take a, a class in this. And now I have an interest in that. But we also want to expose people to different things because if I'm stuck in my ways when I just know real estate and I don't want to venture off, it's like, why not venture off? Why not diversify? Why not grow your knowledge in different type of asset classes? Because ultimately, the more you know, the more power you gain. And now you can actually contribute more. You can take those knowledgeable things that you learn back to your community and now you're adding to a bigger community and a broader community. I like that. I like that. It's it's you're you're coming together for a shared purpose, but the avenues by which you do it don't have to be the same, right? So that's a that's a really interesting way to think about it. Amir, one of the ways that you guys have approached this is through something called a DAO. So for those of our listeners who are hearing the term DAO for the first time, decentralized autonomous organization what is a DAO and why did a DAO make sense for the players company and, and this approach that you're taking? Yeah. So you, like you said, DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. How I like to define it, really, it's a group of people working towards a common purpose with a shared bank account. And so decentralized in terms just references how it's governed. And so it's governed by the people. It's not governed by one central entity. There's not a CEO or one person that's making any one decision, but in DAOs, decisions are come to consensus through, it could be a consensus protocol, it could be through consent or a democratic majority, but there's some form of voting that goes on in a DAO and votes, depending on kind of what that quorum is, it could be 51%, 90%. Um, once quorum is reached, that vote is pushed through. So you let the people really dictate that direction of that organization. The autonomous part Right now, I'd say there's only a super small amount of DAOs that are actually autonomous. A lot are dues, just decentralized organizations. But the autonomous component comes in when you leverage smart contracts. So smart contracts are basically code on the Ethereum blockchain. It's a if then then that, that this statement where if this happens, then this happens and you unlock some form of funds. But the autonomy piece, you can code smart contracts that can automate various processes of a business. But like I said, really not too many have actually reached that point yet. And then the organization is just this collective of people. But you'll traditionally see DAOs are tokenized communities, meaning that these communities have a token. And for owning that token, some DAOs are one token, one vote. And so for owning that token, you have the shared upside of that community, as well as you have the say-so. That token lays the foundation for governance. But simply a group of people working towards a purpose with a shared bank account, and we're all voting on that direction. And so from our standpoint of you know why a DAO made the most sense, kind of spoke on it earlier, where the reason why the current system is so broken is comes down to that economic misalignment. And so what you're able to do with a DAO is you're able to align both socially and economically, socially in terms of we're all coming together behind this common purpose, and economically in that typically you get paid in your community's token. And so if you're doing work or you're contributing to the protocol or the community, you're getting paid in that token. And so we're all incentivized for that token to accrue value. And so we're all working towards both one, a social purpose, and we're working towards an economic purpose and we all want to win together. And so you essentially create a world where you shift the focus from an institution to the people and it really becomes purpose over profits. And so I always believe in you can do well by doing good. 
and you really create that world where you are we can do well we can really achieve whatever this purpose that we've we've set out to achieve and we also can share in that upside and so that was really the fundamental issue that we saw was how do we attack the problem at its root and the root was the system and so how do you now take these framework of web three and endows to create systems that are representative of the people that can truly be there to you know do what's in the best interest. And for from our standpoint, from the players' company side of things, it was like, look, how do you create something that's for players by players? And how can we make it fun? Like the players' company itself is is, is more of an informal networking group. Like Sheldon said, it's about connecting great people with great people and great people with great opportunities where we can all kind of intermingle and co-collaborate, educate each other, transfer knowledge, information, and experience and opportunity. And it's really about us. The ethos of it is group economics. And so with the players' company, the goal is like, you know, at some point, you know, human nature is we are inherently selfish. And so imagine like the player's company was huge one day and, you know, I felt some type of way and I was like, this is the direction of the company. Well, you know, that can taint really the the purity of the mission. And so now you say, no, this direction of this company is going to be dictated by the community. We're not going to leave it up to, you know, our inherently flawed human nature. We're going to leave it up to Everybody, because there might be some people that are inherently flawed, but as a community, I generally say we can make better decisions collectively. What I was going to say on on that piece of of you know uh, people as a group making good decisions, you know, on on one hand, what I really like about it is that there's real skin in the game from everybody, right? One token is one vote. If you're an early adopter, well, then you benefit from you know having maybe being able to buy more tokens when they're a little bit cheaper, and you get to sort of set the direction a little bit. That's sort of my like individual hat. As an investor hat, and I'm always curious about this with these sort of decentralized you know, projects, you know, the traditional way that venture capitalists or other investors have put together you know, money into deals is they've looked at who the leadership of the company is, right? You look at the management team and you say, do I believe in this management team? Do I believe in the people behind it? If their direction and their mindset is something I believe in, then I'm gonna put money in. How does that change with a DAO? How does that change how you you sort of market to investors that they should be a, a part of the organization that you're building? It's a great question. And, and my thought there is, I think one of the kind of misconceptions is that all DAOs start truly decentralized. I don't think, like there are some that have started just truly flat out decentralized, but especially from our standpoint and, and what we're building out and kind of we'll touch on the ecosystem that we're building out underneath the player's company. But we will achieve decentralization over time. And so as we start here, basically, we have laid this path. This is our vision. And it's really about bringing the community into that vision and saying, okay, we want to be extremely transparent, especially as we get into these various aspects of financial services and banking, et cetera, where these systems have been inherently the opposite of transparent. It's about letting people in and and saying, okay, this is our plan. And then basically you kind of build from this this core team. Like we have the core team that we're all mission aligned. This is the path that we're laying. You've got to lay the road. And then now it's about really inviting the people onto the road and now saying, okay, we've laid the road all the way here. You guys see the direction that we're headed. Now let's continue to build. Let's continue to lay the bricks on the road. Let's build, you know, it could be a a city around the road, whatever it may be, but it's about building around that base layer of this is the direction we're headed. And so you don't lose that. You don't lose that kind of that core team aspect. But what you do, what I do think is the really cool thing that is kind of 
different than how it's traditionally been done is that you establish kind of your core team, your core individuals that understand, but then you can bring in in a very flexible manner people that are just as bought into it as you are and pay them literally in the token that is literally worth zero right now, all off the pretense that we can build something awesome together. And so I think you build a stronger core than traditionally where people have been, I mean, you have your core team that are working day and night, you know, the startup life, but it's really that core team. And, and beyond that, there really is no more support system than that kind of core team that's building. But now it's like you can really build an almost buffer zone of support around the core, what we call them liquid contributors um, that can come in and add value. So that's the cool thing. I don't think from our standpoint where we achieve decentralization over time, but it's really about building from that community centric standpoint from day one, though. That's a really different thing from, you know, what people call traditionally Web2 companies, right, that, that are very equity compensation based to what we're seeing these more Web3 companies that are token incentive based, right? And just for our listeners to sort of distribute the two, right? On the Web2 side, a lot of startups have advisors in the early days, and they give those advisors some kind of equity. Advisors don't know what the equity is worth. Founders don't know what the equity is worth. And then maybe the company becomes a billion-dollar business and the advisor makes some money. But also the liquidity is not there, right? It's sort of a, a very like fixed quantity of ownership that you're giving somebody. What I found really interesting about this idea of Web3, and, and, and you know, both of you guys let me know if I have it right, it's this idea of like your early adopters can be incentivized for being early adopters. And that's that's a really unique thing that, you know, if I'm an early adopter of a new company that starts up in the sort of traditional Web2 world, they're not out here offering me equity, even though I'm taking a chance on them, right? But like, hey, man, I tried out your service. I, I tried out Uber back when nobody wanted to get in somebody else's you know car, and I'm not being incentivized for that risk. Whereas I can imagine Uber of the new world or, or Airbnb of the Web3 world, if I'm one of the first thousand people that tries out Airbnb, not only do I hopefully get a great experience, but you know I also, I also earn some token for taking a chance. The coolest thing about that too, I think, is that your community becomes your strongest asset. And so as an investor, you're really looking at the communities you're investing in first, product second. Because if you build around a strong community that really is bought into the mission, the vision, and the execution plan, your first V1 product could be trash. But what that community is going to do is that they're going to provide the feedback and say, okay, this is how we can make this better. This is how we can iterate. It's the same reason you look at uh, Olympus Dow. And Olympus Dow, their token went from, I think it was like $3,000 all the way to $40, like literally 99% decrease in price. But if you go on the Olympus Dow Discord channel, every single day there are people in that Discord channel talking about this is how we can make it better. This is how we can improve it. This is how we can increase the value. And so you're, you're literally investing in networks. And networks are a lot more powerful. I read a tweet the other day that networks are a lot more powerful than companies um, because of the staying power. Like your you're, people are joining communities and feeling like they're part of something that is bigger than themselves. And that's the most powerful thing about it that I think is like that it, it really changes the dynamic of like, okay, the flexibility of how you're really looking at investment. Because from our standpoint too, we we started to invest in a couple Web3 projects ourselves. And it's really interesting because it's a very different dynamic of how you evaluate that investment opportunity, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Sheldon, you were talking about earlier how you know part of your role has been getting the athlete community involved in this, really making sure that you're making 
all these different kinds of investment opportunities accessible to the, the population that you know, which is pro athletes, right? Guys that you play with, guys that you've come up with. Talk about what community building looks like when your core audience is professional athletes and when can the average listener or, or the average investor become a part of uh, the, the player's company community as well? Yeah, so it's kind of cool. We, we tried to play on the keeping up with the Joneses and he said, she said, we just kind of fed into that role and saying, oh, well, the player's company got this deal for me and it did this or it tripled or it's a unicorn now. So uh, we started with public.com. Uh, we got into that early and uh, now it's considered a unicorn. And we got guys in locker room saying, have you guys heard about the player's company? Now we're using word of mouth to really get everybody involved in things like that and just opening their eyes. And now it's trying to transform. We started with VC, moved into real estate. Now we're hitting franchise and really trying to open up people's eyes. Uh, we have a partner, uh, Malcolm Jenkins, really big into the franchise. I had him come talk to the community, what his uh, ups and downs were about that. So really trying to educate people from our experience. We have a player who's playing right now. He's he's a franchisee owner and things like that. And just it, it hits different when it comes from up here. And now you're saying, if he's doing that, why can't I? So things like that. So really, like that's how we're kind of approaching getting more athletes involved and things like that. And uh, hopefully... Uh, we want to get everybody involved, but you know, it's a slow grind. Make sure all the processes are handled and situated. We don't want to uh, provide a bad product because we know you get one opportunity to impress somebody. So we're definitely trying to be really make sure the product adds value before we offer it to the broader community. Yeah, you, you want to be intentional about how you grow, right? I mean, we hear these horror stories of startups that they, go, they come out of stealth too quickly and the next day they have more demand than they can handle the site crashes. And that's a, that's a golden opportunity you know, gone in a matter of minutes. What is the what does the education product look like? I'm I'm trying to imagine it. Is it Zoom classes where Malcolm Jenkins is you know on a on a blackboard talking about uh, here's how you invest, or is it content that you guys are creating and putting out there that people can access via an app? Uh, t- talk to me about that aspect of it because that to me is really interesting, right? Like it's not just education, it's not just deal flow. They're tied together in this way. So I'd love to understand that piece of it. Yeah, for sure. We're leveraging a platform called GatherTown where we actually, it's an in-class person or sort of experience. So you download GatherTown. We have an instructor, which could be an athlete, could be a business professional, things like that. And they are leading a class and giving a real life example. So one we had with Kat Cole and Justin Hardy really talked about franchising and talking about Justin's struggle and how Kat uh, she was the at the time the CEO of Focus Brands. So really a business professional in the space, an athlete in the space, and really they're going back and forth, having a genuine conversation, letting people ask questions and things like that. And they're also uh, providing digital content to where people can absorb it. They can be on the go. They can watch it and things like that. So really just trying to highlight athletes in business and also give them a space to where they can go learn and there's no dumb questions truly because you're in a space with other athletes. You're in a space with people where you're from and things like that. So you're learning together. So now you go have another conversation offline and now it's truly being educated. Now it's, oh, well, what about this? And you can just hit a chat easily. You can go to the Discord. You can do things like that. So really trying to grow this community organically and making sure, all right, what did you like about GatherTown? Or what did you like about an in-person? Or would, would you rather have Zoom? So we're trying to use all platforms. Or would you like a digital content series talking about specifically franchising? So really trying to grow everything to make sure we cater to everybody's needs. Yeah, really leaning into that sort of community feedback loop, right? Uh, Check in with them after each piece of content. Amir, once you have that community, you talked a little bit about 
including other financial products. I know that's obviously in the works right now, so as much as you can talk about it, what kind of things can you offer when you do have that passionate community with a shared bank account? Yeah, so underneath the players' company, really, really the mission is to, beyond just educating our constituents and and our immediate community of athletes, like Sheldon said, as professional athletes, whether small or, or big names, you know, we're all heroes in our hometown. And, you know, really our mission is like, how can we begin to leverage, you know, our platforms for social change? And so underneath the Players Company, we're launching three different systems. The first being Bank DAO, then Generational Wealth DAO, and then Advisor DAO, essentially decoupling the banking system, wealth management, consumer bank, investment bank, slash alternative investments. And it's really building out tangible products where we can now execute on that vision and that mission for the broader community. So the products that we'll be launching underneath the player's company will be extremely inclusive. There will not be specific person that it's not just for athletes. It'll be for for the entire community. And it'll share that same ethos of group economics and collaboration and community. And it's going to center around, so BankDAO will center around a digital banking experience. And again, it's going to be owned and operated as a DAO. And so really, you know, leveraging these these Web3 frameworks to really reinvent the financial system from the inside out. And so from our standpoint, you know, historically banking has been a, a very broken system. It's it's not broken for the banks because, you know, they are generating billions and billions of dollars. But <laughs> from a consumer standpoint, it's broken. It's very one way. You know, they they take our money they essentially, they make money off of our money and give us crumbs and say, be happy with it. And really, from our standpoint, we see really the bank as, as one of the primary gatekeepers to wealth in America, where you see you know, individuals and, and families, a lot of their net worth is tied into their primary home. And you look at, you know, the discrepancy in mortgage lending has really cut off, you know, a pretty significant portion of the population from actually having wealth. And so from our standpoint, it's like, how do you really reimagine what banking is? How do you create a bank that is not just here to say, how can we make money, but how can I make your life better? How can I add value to you? How can I begin to educate you? How can I help you achieve your career goals? Where if you ask anybody what their bank does for them, they say they hold their money. And we think that standard needs to change, where you should expect that your bank, who is the gatekeeper to wealth in this country, should be adding value to helping people build wealth in this country. And so our goal is how do we create this two-way street of value where value created is value returned, where the larger the financials, the, the larger the financial institution, the larger the impact. And so essentially on a 30,000 foot view, what BankDAO will include is we'll make, we'll generate revenue on various banking products, debit cards, net interest margin on future lending products, DeFi accounts, et cetera. But the only difference is that now that capital will flow into community treasury. And again, kind of to that analogy of a group of people operating towards a purpose with a shared bank account, now leveraging our shared bank account, how can we add value to the community's life? How can we invest in charitable mm-hmm. initiatives? How can we provide various scholarship grants? How can we really begin to educate the community? And really what it comes down to, we look at the wealth gap in America now, it's just as wide now as it was in 1968. And what underlies that wealth gap is an opportunity gap. It's an opportunity to be educated. It's an opportunity to access capital. It's an opportunity to access investments. And our goal is to level that playing field where equal access can genuinely and authentically provide equal opportunity. So that's what we're building out. Really the goal, we want to change the world. We want to, you know, one step at a time, but, you know, a stronger Black and brown and, you know, minority economy is a stronger, broader economy. This is no longer one, you know, black versus white. This is how can we win together? This is group economics. This is about collective empowerment. This is about people caring about people so we can all build wealth and live happy lives together. So that's really what this is about, what we're building. Yeah. And and what I appreciate about that so much is that 
you would think that in the world that we live in today where where capital it really is abundant again it's abundant for a certain group of individuals but you would think that when the amount of capital out there is not a differentiator then banks should be competing for our business right and ultimately all they really compete for is they say oh we'll give you fractions of a point on a rate percentage and it almost feels like it moves in lockstep. I'm at Chase Bank, I go across the street to Bank of America, I'm kind of getting the same deal, right? And you would think that that there really should be some level of competition beyond just the financial. And so this idea of plugging into the community, right? When, when you used to think about like, there's a lot of these neo banks that are coming up that are focused on, you know, if you're a freelancer, there's a specific bank for you. If you're a trucker, there's a specific bank for you because everybody has different needs, why not be able to go get that from our bank as opposed to just being the, you know, the, the, the few percentage points on an on a interest savings account that like, I mean, with inflation these days, like what does that even really do for you, right? So it's such an interesting way to think about the purpose of a bank is not just being a place where you hold deposits, but where as a collective, if you have a shared goal, then that institution can be can be adding a lot more value to your life. So I, I, that, that's, I think, a very, very unique angle that you guys are taking. I'm assuming this is the first startup for both of you. What's been the hardest or most surprising thing of building a startup? This is, dec- this is what? This is my second one. Third, third. So in college, I did okay. an app. Okay, so okay. Remember my app? <laughs> so I created a bit, a call. It was called Buzz. It was pretty cool. It was basically like Snapchat campus stories before Snapchat where anybody who posted a picture or video would go okay. to this common thread on Notre Dame's campus, and people actually used it. But the hardest thing, I'd say, I mean, shoot, it's just a grind every single day. And it's like, you're constantly learning. Like, you constantly got to challenge yourself to really push past that comfort zone, like beyond just putting in crazy amount of hours. Like, there are sometimes like, you know, you could get discouraged where like you put something out there and it doesn't get the reception you think about it, but it's really kind of internalizing and having that confidence that, you know, you're confident in one, the mission and the vision that you're, you know, that North Star that you're pushing towards. And you're confident in yourself that you're the one that can actually make it happen. And so it's kind of like being an entrepreneur and on this startup journey at times can be extremely lonely because it's like, shoot, me and Shell, like, you know, we've been at this for a while now. And like, we've just been learning and learning and learning. But sometimes it's like, it's just me and Shell, like, you know, early on in the early days, we get on calls, people not showing up, you know, we're not getting the type of the, the reception and the respect that we thought that we we deserved just as human beings. And it's like, dang, that could be extremely discouraging. But for us, like the biggest thing has been just never quit. Like just always, if you believe in something, put everything behind it, commit yourself to it. And if you don't quit, you don't fail. Like there's so many what we would call quote unquote failures along this journey where something we put out didn't work. You know, something we tried, bad reception, negative feedback, but every single, you know, quote unquote, micro failure is a learning experience. And it has just made us stronger. And now just really formulating kind of this strategy to now pursue building this system out. So that's been the hardest part. It's just really just kind of just during the loneliness and during kind of this, this blackness of where things might not look like they'll ever work out saying, I believe in myself. I believe in the company. I believe in Shell. I believe in this mission. Let's put one foot in front of the other and let's keep rocking. Yeah, Sheldon, I'd, l- I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, man. Yeah, I would definitely say the grind of it, for sure. Like, uh, we always try to relate it to sports. It's like, what's, what was the hardest thing of sports? And we always, like, fall camp, for sure. So, But it's about waking up, 
all right, it's a new day. Let's get better. Let's let's grow in this area. Let's learn about this. Let's do this. So we really try to keep a positive mindset. And I think that's the the hardest part. It's like Amir was talking about, like people not showing up to meetings. Like, wow, like, they'll show up for somebody else. So just not trying to or taking the emotions out of everything and just taking it for what it is. I would definitely say that was probably the hardest part. But then it's also having uh, things on the side. So as everybody knows, I'm a football player. So really trying to manage in both. It's like. How do I pour into my football career? But also, how do I make sure that TBC and Bank Dow is the biggest thing that ever happened to the world? So really trying to have true time management for sure. And then also the other endeavors I try to do, like the real estate, just everything, just making sure that I find time to balance, but also have a family life. So just making sure that I, I find time for myself and stuff like that. So I would say the time management part as well. So it's definitely been cool, a great experience. I wouldn't change it for the world. I've heard a few of our guests in the past, like I've been thinking of Vernon Davis and maybe even a couple of guys in the NBA that talked about how GMs or scouts would find out about players having things that they work on in the offseason. Have you ever had that situation? Guys pull you aside and be like, hey, man, I see you on Twitter talking about, you know, players company. What, what is this? And how is that received from management or other teammates even? The, so actually, this happened this past year. They asked, like, what was I doing off the field? Uh, they tried to have a conversation with me on a Tuesday, and that's my business day. Like, I shut off all football interactions until late at night when I watch film. So it was like they were calling me, blowing me up, and I'm like, hey, like, I, I can't talk to you guys right now. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. And they're like, what do you mean you're doing this? So it's just uh, it was a different perception. It was like the first time where somebody said that off the field acted or had a problem with on the field and it was uh eye-opening to me it's like i'm trying to grow as a person as a businessman and you guys are trying to distract from that so it, it was a it was a little tough but i understand that obviously i'm a football player first and business comes second as of right now so just trying to make sure that when they do find out it's all right well i as long as i take care of business on the field everything i do off the field shouldn't matter so uh it was definitely uh eye-opening experience for me, but uh, definitely, I wouldn't change it for the world, like I said. I've, I feel like the culture definitely is changing, at least from other athletes, right? I, I feel like it's almost like, you know, people see you out there, they, they see you working, and there's almost like a game-recognized game kind of thing, because you got a lot of athletes that are investing their own money, got guys that are, you know, doing entrepreneurial endeavors, or, I mean, these days, the number of of athletes that you see as creative directors on you know, new brands and startups. I don't even know. I don't even know what that even means, how involved they are. But, you know, the number of sports drinks that have creative directors, I feel like Kobe started that trend and then everybody else started to get around it. It's definitely a shift that I think as a, as a sports fan, as a business person, I've just seen. But then on the league side, on the team side, that's still a very old school culture, right? That's still very much like, you gotta you gotta handle your business first, and and I I like that you alluded to that. Are there specific skills for both of you? You know, having played it at the highest level, having you know achieved a lot of success in college, are there skills from your athletic career that you feel like still serve you really well now as business people? Yeah, yeah, most definitely for me. I I think everything that I went through as an athlete has allowed me to, you know, build what we're building now. Especially, as it really just teaches the art, I'd say, of perseverance and resiliency. My biggest thing, you know, I had my sophomore year, I had um, a bad ankle injury. I broke my ankle and I had got permanent nerve damage and had no feeling from the back of my knee through my toes. And, uh, you know, it was something that really derailed my career where, you know, I was coming from USC. I was 
you know, going to be, I was a starting running back going in as a true freshman. I would have, you know, been the starting running back sophomore year. I had a couple injuries freshman year where I wasn't able to play the season out, but the, you know, the trajectory I knew I was headed was, you know, I was going to stay three years and I was going to leave and get drafted probably in the second and third round. And then I came to Notre Dame. And the first thing that happened was I had this ankle injury and, you know, I was supposed to stay out nine months and it went, it was a year, year and a half. I still couldn't walk right. I couldn't run. I had these nerve pains and I, I felt like I was never going to play again. And from there, it was just like internalizing, like, you know, being able to separate the pain that I was feeling from the strength of my mind. And I told myself that I was going to come back and I was going to play. I knew I wasn't, I, I had lost the first step that I had, but I knew that I was going to get back to whatever a hundred percent was that I had. I was going to put 110% into getting back there and I was going to finish my career. And so, you know, I did. I went, I worked, I put the work in, I did the, the rehab, the crazy amount of rehab. I was sleeping with Dynasplint, trying to get my, my range of motion back. I never got it back, but I ended up starting my last two years and still having the opportunity to sign an NFL contract and put a jersey on. Though the, my career didn't go how I envisioned it to go, everything happened for a reason. It set the stage for where I'm at now because it taught me that there is no circumstance, there is no obstacle that we can't get over. Want me, me, me and Shell both being, you know, men of faith here is leaning on our faith and really digging deep within and saying, we'll find a way. Like even in the darkest of dark, even when there is no light at the underside of the tunnel, it's like, let's look within, let's lean on our faith and we'll find a way. And so that's really been the biggest thing for me. And every single day I think back to those days as a college athlete, when I had to just fight through mentally, it was a grind every single day. It was just get to the next day, get to the next day. You'll get back for a year and a half. So yeah, definitely. I'd say every experience that I went through as an athlete has really helped me you know, build what we're building now. So that's the awesome thing about it. Yeah, and I would definitely talk on that perseverance, just the ups and downs, just making sure that you don't have a bad day. Like one day we might talk and somebody says, no, this is stupid or something like that. And it's like, well, just because you think that the next five people might not think that and just making sure that we just continue to grow as men. And also just the ability to make sure that we don't rub people the wrong way. I think football has taught us that it's like you never know what this person next to you is going to do in 10 years, 15 years and things like that. So making sure you always leave with good intentions or somebody having a good idea of you once you have or once you end that conversation for sure. Well, guys, where I'd love to close with both of you, and this is a question that we love to ask our, our guests, Sheldon, maybe you'll kick it off and then Amir will close with you. If you could go back in time, what is one piece of advice that you would love to give your younger selves? Wow. Wanted piece of advice. Ah, wow. Uh, where do I start? Uh, I would say I would talk to 16 year old Sheldon and say, uh, you'll do great things. All you got to do is just stay the course for sure. I know that sometimes you'll kind of steer off the path, but make sure you stay the course. And then also when you meet the right people, uh, embrace them. Cause I know sometimes it's like, oh, well, we don't connect or we don't, we don't vibe the right way. And I would just kind of distance myself from that individual. And it's like, oh, where the, some house in the world, I was, they would circle back and I meet that individual. And now it's like, oh, well, I remember that time where you distanced yourself or I remember that time where it's like, we didn't have the best time and it's things like that. So always leave a good impression with people because you never know how life works. The circle always come back full circle and just make sure that you stay the course for sure. This is to my 18-year-old self, 18-year-old self. Never quit. Hold on, why don't you go 16-year-old self? Not 18, 18. There's a, there's a reason behind it. It's the last thing I'm going to say. Never quit, work hard, stay true to yourself, and buy Bitcoin. <laughs>
You know what? I, I should I deserve that because of the way I asked the question. But listen, guys, I still appreciate that. Uh, no, listen, fantastic advice for you know young athletes that we know listen to the show, young entrepreneurs that are are trying to find their own way. One of the things I love doing with this show is is just sharing your story, sharing these stories. Because to your point, Amir, earlier that that really touched me was that it can be and it often is a very lonely journey. And so what I like to hope is. Our listeners that are listening to the show right now, realizing that even for guys that have achieved their dreams, you know, playing in the NFL, putting on that jersey, you know, a jersey, achieving the goals that you want to achieve, you can still have those tough moments when you're doing something hard. And building a business is really hard. So, hey, if you're listening out there right now, stay the course and you know, go back in time and buy Bitcoin. I guess is what we'd say. <laughs> All right, fellas, thank you so much for joining me on the game plan today. This was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Game Plan with Jay Kapoor and Tim Cott. As always, thanks so much for listening. A few quick shout outs before you go. First, a huge thanks to our guests, Amir and Sheldon, for educating me on DAOs, Web3, and the Players Company. Look, I definitely learned a lot, and I hope all of you did too. Our thanks to Emmanuel Maestri for editing this episode, and to Neil Kulkarni for packaging and promoting it. Our theme song is called Champ by Stuart Moore. Hey, did you know that you can watch as well as listen to The Game Plan? Head over to our YouTube page for lots of great video content in addition to full episodes in video form. Lastly, if you're still listening, you must really love The Game Plan. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does mean a lot. That's all for now. See you next week on The Game Plan.